Hello and welcome to Encounter on ABC Radio National. I'm Gretchen Miller. Before John Finn went to the inland, very wisely he went to speak with Mrs Aeneas Gunn with the Never Never. She said, young man, if you're going to represent the church really in the outback, you'll have to do three things. She held up her little sunburnt hand and put three fingers together and held them, one, two, three, medical, social work and spiritual work. And she said, if you can bind those three things together, you'll be a man, my son. We're exploring the history, legacy and experience of the Australian Inland Mission, which began in 1912 as an ambitious health communication and support network for remote and desert-dwelling Australians, and is still going strong today as Frontier Services. My God had been too small, and now this landscape, in a sense, is making God much bigger. I wasn't tapping into those issues, images of God as big and powerful or some physical being sitting up there, but, but it was about this creation and what's going on in the land is much more than I had ever understood and, and somehow my understandings of God are connected to that. And then as time went on, my experience of God was much more influenced by rootedness in the landscape rather than by things I might read or those sorts of things. It, it became... Um, the place where I encountered God much, much more easily, in very practical terms. When you turn your eyes inland, what do you see? Maybe nothing more constructed than a fence stretching to the horizon, a paddock roughly shaped by tractor or cattle tracks, maybe just a fragment of country apparently untouched. In fact, the European idea of inland is as highly constructed as the cities and towns in which most of us live, and never more so than during the nation-building years of the first half of last century. We have got across, and on the whole have had a very favourable trip. Lost three horses, the mule and my dog. Had one or two severe attacks of dysentery and a touch of Baku rot, but we've got over them. Anonymous, The Inlander Magazine, 1913. Today the bush population is shrinking as farming families flee an unpredictable climate and multinationals take over the stations. Governments continue to struggle to provide social support to Inland Australia, making this historical program about the Inland Mission one which has a continuing thread into the present. In the more optimistic and opportunistic times of the early 20th century, adventurers, fortune seekers and eccentrics headed out to carve their own piece of this harsh and enormous country. In European eyes, this was a concern. How could a balanced and healthy society develop in such an isolated and macho environment? Enter the likes of the Reverend John Flynn, Presbyterian and founder of the Australian Inland Mission, or AIM, which today, as the Uniting Church in Australia's Frontier Services, operates on a budget of 30-odd million. Rosemary Young is National Director of Frontier Services. Well, its primary objective was to provide pastoral support to the people who were settling the remote areas of Australia. As John Flynn went around from 1912 
um, visiting people where he found them, nearly all men. He was concerned that community couldn't develop unless people were prepared to bring their wives and raise their families in those remote regions. And so he had a concept of, first of all, the hand extended in friendship, the availability of somebody to whom people could just download, uh, who could be there for them no matter what their needs. Alongside that, he saw the need for nursing services so that women particularly would feel safe in Outback Australia. And then to link all of that, he saw the need for communication. Mm. And so on the one hand, he uh, engaged Alf Traeger in the development of the pedal radio. In the other, he started to uh, develop the Outback nursing clinics. And then he got a, a network of patrol padres on the road to be there for people wherever they were found. John Flynn was a passionately inspired man. He was soon seen as a national hero and was later immortalised as Flynn of the Inland by Ian Idris. My impression of him was a well-dressed, uh, meticulously uh, presented person who always wore a waistcoat and a, a watch chain, always wore a Stetson hat, well-tailored, he used to get his suits made at Peeps, you know, well-presented person, but not, not a bushman. You could take him as a good middle-class public servant. You know? uh, everywhere he went, he had this elongated leather case in which there were maps rolled up, and uh, uh, he had that gift of making people feel they were at home. And he used to uh, preach longer than he should have done. He, he, sometimes he didn't know when to stop. But he was a good listener, too, to people afterwards. He used to gather with people and listen to them. That's the voice of the late Reverend Fred Mackay, who died in 2000. Mackay was John Flynn's protégé, almost his disciple, and he took over the reins of the AIM after Flynn. Thanks to a remarkable interview made in the late 1980s with Alec Bolton for the National Library of Australia, we're able to bring you Fred Mackay's voice and insights. It's a very hands-on perspective. Mackay was recruited by Flynn as a patrol padre in the 1930s. He then went to war and a few years after returning in 1952 became superintendent of the AIM. He went on to become Moderator General of the Presbyterian Church from 1970 to 73. It was just at the point that church union was being discussed amongst the Presbyterian, Methodist and Congregational Churches. Here he speaks of talking with Flynn at Southport Beach in Queensland after a surf and being convinced into leaving the coastal beaches for the inland sand dunes. So I sat beside him and he just talked. Then he got on to Birdsville and talked about running a hospital in Birdsville. We've been running it there in a hotel. And he said, we want a man who will be my representative in the country, my boundary rider, as he called it, to coordinate all our work. You. <laughs> yes. But he was looking out toward the sea and just talking dreamily. And again and again, we had a very wry, smiled look. And it was obvious that he had a passion, a quiet, determined passion about developing the service and really doing something for Australia. And he started to talk about the um, Birdsville. And she said, oh, the sand out of Birdsville, those sand hills, they're beautiful. And I was playing in the sand with my 
with my hand, you know. <laughs> and he got a handful of sand and let it run through his fingers. And he looked at me, you know, with a wry smile and he said, hey, the sand out of Birdsville is a lot lovelier than this. <laughs> well, you know, he, he got me by this intriguing method of storytelling and relating it to a challenge, you know. And uh, he walked ahead of me and um, I walked behind him. I put my footsteps in his footsteps that day and they've been there ever since. By the 1930s, European Australians had been nation-building for 40 years and the mission had become a vital part of that powerful drive. The Reverend Dr Andrew Dutney is Principal at Park and Wesley College and Associate Professor of Theology at Flinders University. Initially, at least, it was a powerful sense of the outback as representing the true identity of Australians, even Australians on the coast and in the towns and the cities, regarded the outback described by Lawson and, and Banjo Patterson and the, uh, the Bulletin in general as somehow representing true Australian identity. And for that reason, there was a, a consensus that the uh, development and the extension of settlement into the outback was a priority for the nation. It was part of building the nation. If, if it couldn't be built there, it was never really going to be built properly. And as it happened, Flynn was able to capture that vision and then extend it into the church's long-standing commitment to providing service wherever it would be. The inland was being developed, and it was being developed by men, and there was a concern that if you just have men out there, then you, you've potentially got a problem. The outback had to become a place that was not just safe, but good for families to be in if uh, the uh, nation was really to be to be built in an effective way in those isolated areas. Uh, nobody wanted a subculture of men alone uh, in the bush. From the beginning, Flynn's approach was straightforward and practical. The AIM was never to be about evangelising. Every time I was in a situation where I had to speak to people, I was compelled to come back to the Flynnian sort of approach to try and represent by activity and action the love of Christ. And to do this in words was sometimes difficult, but if we could apply the, the similes and metaphors from that country, for instance branding, you know, because branding was the, was the the way of life, and every person had their own brand and they were proud of their brand. They felt, you know, a, a degree of real ownership. That belongs to me, no matter whose herd it was in. And that was a great metaphor, you know. And uh, it became a sort of a term which applied to baptisms and christening. And this became a branding, you know, <laughs> operation. People said, will you brand our children? And... Uh, you could introduce into your conversation and discussion with people the significance of what branding meant when, when Christ our Lord uh, put his brand upon people in the New Testament. There's no question that he constantly faced, as we constantly face today, the suggestion, or often much more than suggestion, that this ministry of ours is not 
real ministry. Some of our patrol ministers are asked today, so when are you coming back to real ministry? Almost more so the concept then of the minister's role was to have a congregation full to the walls and a nice fat collection plate and to be evangelising, to be bringing people in through the door and keeping them strongly connected to the church. Flynn's vision was that by being there amongst the people they could be at that time, that Christ-like presence, that presence of the church in a very real and practical sense. Evangelism was a very low priority for the Australian Inland Mission, even though the Presbyterian Church in in some key areas around Australia was really quite evangelical in its character. Uh, The reasons for that are a little hard to fathom from this end of the 21st century, but we need to bear in mind that at that time in Australian history, There was a a kind of tacit assumption that the nation was Christian and so these individuals were in some sense Christian and the flock that the church was charged to look after. So as the patrol padres went around, their job was specifically to care for them pastorally and to be their advocates for the provision of the sorts of support systems that they needed in remote areas. Well, my name is Murray Muirhead and I'm a minister within the Uniting Church um, and have been for about 16 years. I went to Frontier Services as the second placement in my ministry and was based in the Flinders Ranges region of South Australia, but travelled across all of the country up to the Territory border and into southwest Queensland. And within that role, I had a role in visiting the stations and the mining camps and the townships and the Aboriginal communities and um, anyone else who happened to be out there. And it was very much a, a role that was based around community development work as well as those more traditional aspects of ministry, um, like rites of passage and, and so on. Can we talk about your life as a patrol padre and just the practicalities of it? How far would you travel? How did you travel? I um I travelled in a Toyota Land Cruiser, a troop carrier that I had sort of kitted out initially with a rooftop tent, although I very quickly moved to just taking a swag because it was much easier to roll the swag out at night and climb into it. I would typically travel for between 10 and 14 days a month in a continuous block and I may cover three or 4,000 kilometres in that particular trip, particularly in the early years of the patrol when I was establishing relationships with people. In, in the latter years I did much more project sort of based work where I might work with a particular community much more than others but but kept in touch with people through phone and email and and so on. And how Um, long would you stay? Would you stay in people's properties or would you you know visit for an afternoon and then leave? What what sort of thing uh, did you do in that way? Because of my own I guess personality and connection with the landscape. My preference was always to disappear into the bush at night and camp under the stars and have some some time out. If I discerned that the person was doing it not just out of basic bush hospitality, but really wanted you know to have some time with me, I would stay overnight at the stations. And the remarkable thing with Frontier Services was, in the area I was, there was a 70-year history of people having patrol ministers and. It was just expected that the patrol minister would come and visit whether a person belonged to the church or not. As a new patrol minister in the area, I was very well accepted. Now, if I'd messed things up, people might have closed the door, but the door was open to begin with. I didn't have to get the door open. And it would have been odd if there was a particular homestead that you didn't visit rather than the other way around. 
Well, uh, John Flynn, when he uh, sent me forth, said, you've got no home, you have no church, you have no abiding place, you live in a swag beneath the stars, and you'll have a tucker box, you'll, you know, quite frequently have to make your own dampers, but you'll find that people in the inland will have open doors and uh, every home will be a home. And that, that's the way it worked out. Realistically, what we're about is taking risk, uh, risk in relationship, risk in, in the geographical and, uh, and environmental sense, but we also are blessed with dozens, perhaps hundreds of people who are prepared to just find the way, whether it's providing care to uh, frail elderly people on the outskirts of Darwin or whether it's providing a nursing service to a person living in a tiny hut on a remote property, we have people who are prepared to find the way and if necessary document it later. But the key is to actually make it happen. We have, um, we have a client of one of our services in Darwin to whom we provide dog food so that he will eat the meals that are delivered to him as Meals on Wheels and not feed them to his dog. And his address is the pipeline, Darwin. That kind of thing would not happen uh, delivered by a mainstream service because you need an address and you need documentation and, of course, the meals are intended to be delivered to the human being, not the dog. Uh, our patrol ministers are, in some ways, uh, better resourced. I mean, they have air-conditioned vehicles, they have satellite phones but they find the way to be with people where their need is great and they don't stop to ask, is this the policy, is this the practice, do we have a procedure for this? We, um, we continue the struggle which both Flynn and, and Fred experienced of people wanting to rein us in to have the policy documents, the risk management strategies in place and to an extent we have them but quite often they're written after the event. Whenever I have a moment of thinking, this is undoable, somebody rings me with some extraordinary story of, of just doing things that they think are every day. A remote area family services team that's swum a river with a plastic box full of toys on their heads in order to have a playgroup for kids who've been waiting for three months for their playgroup. But the river's come up and maybe they wouldn't have got there, but the kids are waiting, so of course we should swam across the river and you think, oh. Right. Risk management for this? Oh, they had a rope. The success of the mission's Flying Doctors Service, which is now celebrating its 80th anniversary, is well known. Less well known is the work of Alf Traeger, another of the extraordinary can-do people that Flynn gathered around himself and who pioneered radio communication in the bush. For practical purposes, the inland is dumb. Those who dwell beyond the tiny townships are too far apart from neighbours either to speak across the fence, which generally is an imaginary line only, or to exchange visits. The usual method of having a yarn with one's neighbours is to go to the races, which are held once a year, if there isn't a drought on. John Flynn, The Inlander, 1927. I went up to Leichhardt and saw the first sets, pedal sets which were installed. That is, I saw the first sets put in by Trey, the 1929s, which had been remodelled, and saw the people working. 
seeing what it meant to them. And it was mostly the women folk who did the telegrams and the working of the pedal radio because the men were already out on the cattle run. And this was fascinating, to hear these girls talking, calling up. In that country where women were still making their own bread, they were educating children by correspondence, they were ordering their goods uh, from catalogues, and it was humorous to hear their interchange of opinions about dress and about uh, you know when the mail came and uh, how they were getting on with uh, page four of the arithmetic paper with the kids. Here was something which was unseen, and yet it was just as real as any friendship bond. And as I sat there, I thought to myself, this is John Flynn's dream, because this was community. Over the decades that it ran, the AIM built up a solid following. For Andrew Dutney, born in a flying doctor base hospital, the mission was there right from the beginning. Uh, Well, I I have a strong personal connection and affection for the AIM. When my family moved to uh, the city, to Brisbane, so happened that my family went to a Presbyterian church that had had, uh, Fred Mackay as a a minister uh, not that long before we arrived. And uh, when they built their new building, they put in a, uh, a stained glass window uh, dedicated to the Australian Inland Mission that featured scenes from the ministry of John Flynn and the work of the AIM. And so I, I uh, did the rest of my growing up gazing absentmindedly through this glorious picture window while the, the minister went on about whatever he was going on about. So in those days, uh, during the 1960s still, churches in the city knew their remote cousins pretty well. It was a very tribal kind of existence and uh, it provided a network of relationships that enabled something like the AIM to become a kind of, I guess, an icon or a, a symbol of who we thought we were and, and how we wanted to present ourselves to the Australian nation. Flynn was passionate about supporting families to stay together in the bush. His magazine, The Inlander, held numerous terrible stories of babies and children dying because their journeys overland to medical help took literally weeks. Until they could reliably get help, Flynn felt women would never really want to stay out back. A man may serve his country seeing that our cables transferred to the wire at Darwin are still safe when they reach the centre and send his son away 1,000 miles to Adelaide to attend school, while his wife works out her calculations of the heart to decide whether she will follow her little boy or stand by her husband. John Flynn, The Inlander, 1913. Although women could not be ordained, they did work as nurses in remote health hostels, often travelling for days themselves to reach a family in need. When Fred Mackay married his wife, Margaret Robinson, in the late 1930s, she joined him as a nurse. She made her reputation with the removal of a rotten tooth from a station bookkeeper. And he very vehemently described the pain that he was going through with this molar. And he said, look, can you you help in any way? Well, it was just fortuitous, wasn't it? I said, look, I'm no good, but... Gee, oh, Meg's here and she'll be able to help. Well, she sent him on a box outside the store 
And the, the stockmen were round because they went from a, from a camp and they gathered round and Meg gave him an injection which seemed to work all right. Um, then she got the forceps out and she fixed her grip on this tooth all right and she was adopting the professional attitude, you know, the stance, standing behind the patient and with her left arm round his neck and the forceps in her right hand. And she had this grip and uh, she had been told by the people in the Brisbane Dental Hospital, once you get a grip, never let go, because once you let go, you know, you'll never get it again. It was obvious that this was going to be a very interesting exercise because the patient he wanted to rise from his seat at the same time, which he did, and he stood up, and she was still, you know, holding with her left hand round his front, around his neck, and had this tooth, and he wanted to walk away. And she couldn't stop him, so she climbed over the box and just followed him. And these stockmen, one fellow said, I can't watch this any longer. And I was feeling somewhat the same, because I didn't know what was going to happen next. But there was a fence which wasn't very far away between the, the big station homestead and, and the store and uh, they got as far as the fence and uh, I was terribly worried about, you know, how this was going to, to end. But, you know, with a deft turn of the wrist, she got this jolly tooth and out it came and she held it up and the blood was running down each side and... He just rolled his eyes and looked round and he said, what a woman, you know. <laughs> and, and everybody clapped. <laughs> the story of what a woman, it went down on the pedal radio, you know, down the Georgina and down the Diamantina and the Cooper. And where we went, people, you know, say, oh, you're what a woman. And uh, from my point of view, it established the place of a woman in my ministry. You make the point, as Fred Mackay does, that it was a man's world out there. Has this changed and how has it changed? It's changed hugely. We have nine female patrol ministers now out of a total of 22. We, first of all, we're training people for ministry differently. So many of our uh, patrol ministers are what we call in the Uniting Church deacons. So they're trained for community ministry rather than as ministers of the word. So the expectation is not that they'll be preaching necessarily the finest sermon every Sunday, but rather that they have the skills and gifts to have a presence in community and to be a resource and a facilitator. Many of our female patrol ministers also are very skilled counsellors, very skilled supporters. Secondly, the nature of community has changed utterly in remote Australia. At the time that Fred was out there, the time of our former patrol ministers, they would find whole communities gathered wherever they visited and they could literally set off and drive up every drive and at every homestead there would be not only the family but workers and some places Aboriginal camps and they could gather for worship, they could gather and eat together. Now the men are mostly out Quite often the women are alone at home with children. They're educating their children by school of distance education. Most of them don't have nannies or governesses anymore. Most of them are trying to do everything from mustering to cooking to assisting with the bookwork and the education of the children. They're delighted to see a female patrol minister. 
the modus operandi really of patrol ministry these days is to be where people gather rather than to drive up drives because when you drive up drives people are busy or they're not there or in many many cases of course the house is empty the properties have been bought up by the pastoral companies they might have somebody coming just to check fences and bores from time to time or they may be using properties for adjustment so there's no point in driving up every drive because quite often there won't be any people in my particular case, when I, I went to the patrol, my then wife, uh, Reverend Tracy Spencer, was also an ordained minister, and we actually went into two full-time placements and, and worked the patrol area together as a team. So our situation was, was fairly unique. For the first few years, we travelled together, and then increasingly we did, you know, had different project areas. And, and one of the things that was very obvious to me with, with Tracy being present was that you know, some people, men and women, just connected better with her than me and vice versa. But also it meant that particularly for women in the region, there was another woman who was professionally trained and, and interested who they could engage with. And it made a huge difference than if it had just been me on my own. Other colleagues, their partner travelled with them. There was at least one female patrol minister who took her husband along with her sometimes, but predominantly it was male ministers taking wives. And then there were some other colleagues who did do it as, you know, their, their partner had another job somewhere else and, and they travelled on their own. And that certainly, you know, did put strain on things. Um, in my own situation, Tracy moved out of the patrol because we had some children and it was getting too difficult. And so I had three years where I travelled on my own. And certainly by the end of that time, the times away from home were, were difficult, particularly with, you know, my children, you know, under 10 years of age, that sort of thing. You know, I, I wouldn't have sustained the whole seven years if Tracy hadn't been able to travel with me for at least the, the first four of those. You're listening to Encounter on ABC Radio National. I'm Gretchen Miller, and we're exploring the history and legacy of the Australian Inland Mission. Criticism of the AIM for its lack of evangelising was tied up with another more profound criticism that dogged John Flynn and the mission throughout its history. If the AIM was so concerned with the health of remote Australians, where were they for Aboriginal people? Flynn was castigated for dismissing their needs. But at the very beginning, in 1912, he'd made two reports – one on the needs of European settlers and the other about the needs of Aboriginal people. The story of our past treatment of the black people is rotten. We cannot help that. The future, however, is a magnificent chance for some men of broad-minded tendencies and anthropological knowledge to enter a glorious field to champion the cause of a race which is despised by the whites of this country. A race that has some of the finest qualities even if it also exhibits some pitiful degradation. John Flynn, Victorian Messenger, 1912. Ironically, but typically for the time, the results of the Aboriginal report were destined for the Foreign Mission Committee. And Flynn was placed at the head of the AIM, the Presbyterian Church's answer to white settlers' needs. In those days, all of the church's work both within the Presbyterian and Methodist Church with Aboriginal people, came under their world mission sort of thing. So the same group that looked at sending missionaries to places like Papua New Guinea and Africa and all sorts of things were the group with responsibility for ministry with Aboriginal people. 
It was very much a, a product of that sort of time um, and those generations. You know, for many years, the, the Presbyterian and Methodist churches did very significant work with Indigenous people, but it was separated from its work with non-Indigenous people. And then gradually over the decades that followed, the, the patrol ministers, by dint of actually being out in the, the outback areas, of course, did interact with Indigenous people, and Indigenous people accessed the, the remote clinics and the flying doctor service and those sorts of things. The critique of the Australian Inland Mission uh, is largely one that's uh, conducted with hindsight, and I think that has to be borne in mind. When people look at the work of the AIM, what uh, stands out to us is the way in which the needs of uh, European people and communities in uh, remote Australia were always prioritised, and the AIM seemed to have a blind spot where it came to the needs of Indigenous people. Now, I think that uh, does a disservice to the AIM in a couple of ways. One is in that it is translating perspectives that, that have become much clearer at the end of the 20th century and early in the 21st century than, than were in the early 20th century or middle 20th century. So it's anachronistic to project our perspectives back on, on that group. But initially, at least, he, he certainly expressed very sincere concern for uh, Indigenous people. And at, on one occasion, he, he quite famously challenged the church that uh, at a time when Australians were providing tremendous support to uh, women and children who were suffering as a result of the First World War, Aboriginal people he saw suffering the same kind of deprivations and even greater deprivations and yet the help wasn't coming. And he made an effort to shame people into thinking they must respond. But in the end, uh, he was a very pragmatic person and his resources wouldn't stretch to all the things that he saw could be done. And so he prioritised. Aboriginal people were not left abandoned by services like the Flying Doctors, but they weren't specially catered for either. However, the contemporary incarnation of the AIM, Frontier Services, which changed its name during Church Union in 1977, has made serious changes to the way it works with Aboriginal people. This was initiated by the appointment of social justice advocate Brian Smith as National Director in the 1990s. The Reverend Murray Muirhead worked with him. What happened at the time when, when I moved into that patrol was the organisation was at a point of recognising that it needed to become more accountable to the communities it was serving, and it did that fairly well in relation to non-Indigenous community, but not as well in relation to the Aboriginal community. And so Frontier Services moved into partnership with the, the Aboriginal Congress part of the Uniting Church. And so the patrol that I went into had been established by the Congress with a bit of support from Frontier Services but then became a fully established Frontier Services patrol that specifically focused on Aboriginal communities in the region. And, and the critical change was that I was actually also directly answerable to a reference committee that was purely made up of Indigenous people from the Congress and from the area in which I was working. And on a day-to-day -day basis they were my boss and they were the group that I sounded things out with and, and so on. And that represented a, a fundamental change in how Frontier Services, you know, worked with Indigenous communities. Well, the fact that we didn't, as an agency, have responsibility for Aboriginal communities at the time that children were being taken away from families means today that we're trusted and respected 
and don't have to overcome the, the, the taint, I guess, that some agencies have of having been involved in that activity. So while on the one hand one would wish that we in some ways might have been more useful at that time, it's a benefit now to those communities that, that we weren't. So we're able to work in communities like Mordajulu and Warman and throughout East Arnhem Land and well, all over the continent in different places in a relationship of trust that hasn't in any way been challenged by that activity. What are the challenges for you working in Aboriginal communities now with so many conflicting needs and frustrations? Well, the challenges are many. This comes again to the issue of policy. We don't exactly have a policy, but from a practical point of view, we only work in Aboriginal communities where we're invited. We will assist a community if we can in in an area in which we have expertise, whether it's aged care, community care, family support, children's services, whatever, but not with the intention of providing the service in the long term, but rather resourcing communities to do it for themselves. That's extremely difficult because what we're trying to do is train staff locally. We've got a huge training program, particularly throughout the Northern Territory and the north of Western Australia, with the hope that in time those communities will be able to resource their own services. But the dysfunction in those communities mean that staff are just disappearing. And so you're constantly training more and more and more people in the same place. Now, then it may have a a good spin-off in that all around the countryside in other communities, hopefully there are well-trained people who can provide services. And so the dream that we have, I guess, of empowering and strengthening and supporting communities to do things for themselves only seems to last a short period. In the several hours of interview recorded with former Australian Inland Mission Superintendent, the Reverend Fred Mackay, he barely mentions the actual landscapes. For him, it was all about the people, and he expresses this, describing those he left behind in order to go to war. Well, in 1941, the war was looming on my horizon, and I find it hard to express my tremendous sense of loss in losing contact with the people of the bush. These people had come into my life in a way that I was part of them and it was quite traumatic that uh, John Flynn was encouraging me now to take our share in active service and I was torn, tremendously torn. The people on those stations, I can still see them and they, they were mates in the deepest sense. And when I look back at my reports and see these names again, and the ties were so rich and wonderful. And, you know, taking Harry Crombie at Glengyle and Jack Clancy at Kurubulka and, and coming down the Diamond Tina, uh, George Crombie and Selce Morton and Leo Crabbe and Norman Gurr and, and, and Billy Brook. And uh, there, there were the, the carriers uh, on the Birdsville track and the blind, half-blind mailman that operated between Birdsville and Batuta. And then the children you'd baptised, the people you'd married, and going right across even to the Urundanji country outside of Bulya. Children growing up and people into whose lives you'd really become a kind of vital part. 
Generally, it wasn't until the 1950s that Australians conceived of the inland as aesthetically pleasing. But John Flynn was a most unusual man, and even back in 1913, he saw the beauty and the romance of the landscape. The sun is bright, the air beautifully clear, and light clouds break up what would otherwise be a monotony of perfect blue. The spinifex had rain to freshen it a fortnight ago, and the dark green clumps stand out on ground of red sand, which stretches for miles in the long valleys between very low hills. Desert oaks are looking their best and throw deep shade where several are grouped together, but the breeze which murmurs in a delightfully lazy fashion through their needle-like leaves is cool today. So shadows are needed only for purposes of the picturesque. What a wonderful place is Central Australia. Finest pastoral country in Australia, says one. Desert, says another. John Flynn, The Inlander, November 1913. For Rosemary Young and Murray Muirhead, the extraordinary physical presence of the locale of their work directs their very particular ways of experiencing God. There are two places that I can't actually drive all the way there without having to stop. Um, one is between Windora and Birdsville. There's a big gibber plain at one point and some mountains in the distance. And it's physically impossible for me to keep driving past a certain point without having to just get out and just be in that landscape. And there's a point also between Catherine and Kununurra in the Kimberley where the landscape just overwhelms me and that awe-inspiring being in the creation. It's amazing. I guess initially the, the beauty of the landscape was what, what struck me. I, I perhaps looked at things like the Flinders Range as much the same as any other tourist and, and was stunned by the beauty and the colour and those sorts of things. What happened though, the, the longer I lived there, through my relationships with the Adyamutna people in the Flinders, I began to learn the stories of the country and also through the, simply the physical stuff of lying in the dirt each night in my swag, sitting around the campfire at night and so on, somehow that landscape began to become part of me in a way that it had never done before. And even the bits that looked very barren to other people who often travelled with me, to me, were full of life and energy. And I developed a, a very strong sense of, of place and, and of attachment, such that when I eventually left the Flinders, it was by far the hardest move I had ever made in my life anywhere. And part of it, it was about the relationships with people. But a very significant part of it was that I had become connected to that land in a way I never had to any land before. What, what did that, coming to know and love the landscape in that very profound way, what did it do in terms of your experience of God? Initially, I was very much aware of it, it opening up my sense of God. I mean, the, my experience of the landscape was that it was expansive. The skies were huge, the horizon seemed huge, and in a sense, my whole conception of God expanded in the same way. It, it became um, much harder to have very strong certainties about things. It was unsettling in the sense of, of opening up things rather than closing them down and it was very challenging. And then as time went on, my experience of God 
was much more influenced by rootedness in the landscape rather than by things I might read or those sorts of things. It, it became um, the place where I encountered God much more easily. In, in very practical terms, it, I tend to have a fairly meditative sort of spirituality. I found it much easier to do that sitting under a tree or on a rock somewhere than sitting in my office back home, whereas in earlier years that had never been an issue. How is your relationship to the landscape different to your congregation? I don't think that it's ever possible for me to share the profound relationship that the Anangu people have with their land. Also, it's not inconceivable for me that at some stage in the far distant future I will move somewhere else and start another life and pursue some other things. That's not true for the people I work with. They experience a sense of grief and loss and yearning when they move away from their country. In 1951, John Flynn found himself on the outside. He was almost 70 and the Australian Inland Mission had been running for close to 40 years. Flynn knew he had to give up the superintendency soon. In a bid to have a say in the future of the now geographically widespread mission, Flynn suggested that the job might suit three regional seniors rather than one superintendent but not a single board member supported his plan. The vote against Flynn was devastating. Flynn, with this disconsolate sort of expression, said the board don't want me anymore. It was the first time I saw him expressing apprehensions about what the future held. He told me then about the plan that he had presented to the board and he explained in very slow but certain terms that there had been a real plot behind the scene to put him in a position where he would be compelled to resign. And the convener of the board, the Reverend Gray Robertson, a very strong leader, he quite obviously plotted to make this the, the decisive point when they wouldn't accept Flynn any longer. And they waited for this board meeting to come up at the end of 1950, and John Flynn presented his plan, and there wasn't one person who supported him. And that's what distressed him. And it was the first time, I would say, that John Flynn was placed in a position where a great big no had been said. <laughs> And uh, that story was the saddest story that I've ever heard. Six weeks later, and still in a state of grief, the Reverend John Flynn died from cancer. But he needn't have worried about the AIM. The Reverend Fred Mackay took over the reins, and sometimes to the board's chagrin, kept the good name of John Flynn alive. The service flourished, but hopes one day to come full circle and downsize rather than keep growing. Most organisations are about building a business plan. If we could build a business plan, it would be about going backwards. I mean, our dream for Outback Australia would be that we wouldn't need to be there, that people would be so connected, communities would be so functional, people would be so successful that there wouldn't be a need for us to be providing services or appropriately governments should be providing most of the services we provide the pastoral support would happen within communities and people to each other and you might resource that to some degree but if we built a business plan it would be about decreasing our scale 
Rosemary Young, National Director of the Uniting Church's Frontier Services. And many thanks to Frontier Services, the Reverend Dr Murray Muirhead, support worker for the Anganuku Area Ministry Council, and the Reverend Dr Andrew Dutney, Associate Professor of Theology at Flinders University. Thanks also to the National Library of Australia for the archival interview with the Reverend Fred Mackay. Don't forget to visit the Encounter website where you'll find some of John Flynn's beautiful photographs, the full program to stream or podcast, and a transcript too. Just go to abc.net.au rn encounter. Readings today were by Russell Stapleton, with technical production by Louis Mitchell. I'm Gretchen Miller. Thanks for your company on Encounter Today.